Our text this morning is from the Gospel of John chapter 7. So I invite you to turn there in your Bibles. John chapter 7. Today we will be looking at the quite a long passage, verses 1 through 24. This is God's holy and inspired word. John chapter 7, 1 to 24. After this, Jesus went about in Galilee. He would not go about in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. Now the Jews' feast of booths was at hand. So his brothers said to him, Leave here and go to Judea, that your disciples also may see the works you are doing. For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. For not even his brothers believed in him. Jesus said to them, My time has not yet come, but your time is always here. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify about it that its works are evil. You go up to the feast. I am not going up to this feast, for my time has not yet fully come. After saying this, he remained in Galilee. But after his brothers had gone up to the feast, then he also went up, not publicly, but in private. The Jews were looking for him at the feast and saying, Where is he? And there was much muttering about him from the people. While some said he is a good man, others said, no, he's leading the people astray. Yet for fear of the Jews, no one spoke openly of him. About the middle of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and began teaching. The Jews therefore marveled, saying, how is it that this man has learning when he has never studied? So Jesus answered them, my teaching is not mine, but is his who sent me. If anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I am speaking on my own authority. The one who speaks on his own authority seeks his own glory. But the one who seeks his own but the one who seeks the glory of him who sent him is true, and in him there is no falsehood. Has not Moses given you the law? Yet none of you keeps the law. Why do you seek to kill me? The crowd answered, You have a demon. Who is seeking to kill you? Jesus answered them, I did one deed, and you all marvel at it. Moses gave you circumcision, not that it is from Moses, but from the fathers. And you circumcise a man on the Sabbath. If on the Sabbath a man receives circumcision so that the law of Moses may not be broken, are you angry with me because on the Sabbath I made a man's whole body well? Do not judge by appearances but judge with right judgment. Thus far the reading of God's Word. You may be seated. Opposition. Opposition. These two chapters... Chapters 7 and 8 in the Gospel of John record for us in a greater extent than any other place in the Gospel of John and perhaps even in the other Gospels the opposition that Jesus faced. 
If you read through these chapters, which I encourage you to do perhaps later this afternoon with your families, you will find that in these two chapters there is no one on Jesus' side. There is no one mentioned who is a friend, who is a brother, who is a disciple to Jesus in these two chapters. These two chapters are about opposition. The opposition that Jesus Christ faced. He was all alone, it would seem, in His work here. And that is the picture that I believe the Apostle John wants us to get. That Jesus was alone against the opposition that He faced while He was here on earth. Now, when we talk about opposition, opposition is not always a bad thing. We can talk about opposition in an astronomical sense when we see heavenly bodies in what they call opposition. That's actually the best time to view them. The moon is moving back toward being a full moon, back to full opposition. That's not a bad thing. It's when you can see the most detail. We can talk about opposition in a military sense. There are special op forces, operation forces, or oppositional forces that armies use to train their soldiers. They have the oppositional forces that in the Cold War days used to pretend to be the the Russians. These days they pretend to be Iraqi soldiers. They may even fit out their equipment to look like that particular army's equipment. Opposition can be spoken of in a political sense. We have opposing parties that uh, sometimes uh, fight against each other, but we believe in our country that that's a good thing, that these, we have these opposing parties because they help us maintain some equilibrium. In fact, I was interested to discover that uh, in, in uh, the United Kingdom that there is a party known as, or there can be parties known as the, Her Majesty's Loyal Opposition. That they can oppose her, but they will always be loyal to her. We can talk about opposition in a physiological sense. What is the amazing thing that sets us apart from many of the animals? The opposing thumb. This wonderful thing we have, this opposable thumb that allows us to manipulate things, allows us to grab things, allows us to give wonderful signs. (laughs) Things are okay. Things are good. The opposable the opposable thumb. We can, we can talk about opposition in a relational sense. Perhaps we don't want to, but we can. We can talk about opposition that we face within our relationships. And, and um, uh, there, is a, there is actually a, a diagnosis for children that are very, very oppositional. Oppositional defiant disorder, which some of us may call other things at times. <laughs> Opposition. It's not always a bad thing, but it is when it comes to Jesus, when it comes to the Christ. And what we're going to talk about today, what we're going to look at, is in this passage are are four groups of people that Jesus talks about that are found in opposition. And I would tell you this, that opposition to Jesus is a dangerous position. Opposition to Jesus is a dangerous 
position. The first group that we look at here in this passage are the brothers, Jesus' brothers. And we could say if we were to label their opposition, we might say that their opposition is that of being, like many brothers might be, uh, if we were to place ourselves in the same situation to see this man doing the things he's doing and know that he's our brother, it would be unbelief. That's where really the position we find these brothers in. This dangerous position of opposition is unbelief. They did not believe in Him. It looks on the surface as though they were trying to be helpful, right? Those first few verses there tell us that they suggested to Jesus, why don't you go up to Jerusalem for this, for this feast? There will be a great number of people there. You will certainly be able to gather a great following if you were to go up there and do your stuff, do your tricks, pull out another trick out of your bag and show people, then, then they will, uh, they'll follow you. You'll have this great following. But Jesus knew it was not His time to go. In fact, uh, Jesus knew it was not His time because He knew that at that time, if He were to go, chances were He would be taken too soon. He would be taken, captured, perhaps even killed. But the brothers didn't really even believe in Jesus. They wanted, perhaps, to put Him in a place of danger. At this point in their lives, they were still opposed to Him. They were not on His side. These are, these are actually Jesus' literal brothers, by the way. It's not, there is a place in the Gospels He talks metaphorically or uh, as an analogy. He talks about, these are my brothers and sisters pointing to His disciples, people sitting around Him. But this is actually uh, James who wrote the Gospel or the, the epistle to James. Um, Judas, um, it's a different Judas than the one uh, who betrays him. Uh, I believe another another brother's name was Simon and then Joseph. But these are his brothers. And they were opposed to him and their, their opposition was that of unbelief. And that's a dangerous position, isn't it? When it comes to Christ, it is a dangerous position. Opposition to Jesus is always a dangerous position. And when it comes to unbelief, we know what the consequences of that are. That unbelief leads away from Christ. Unbelief leads to another place. If Christ is life, and He is, and as His disciples declared in the last chapter, we're not going to leave you. You have the words of eternal life. Jesus' life following after Him, being in step with Him, means life. Opposing Him, being unbelievers, not believing in who Jesus Christ is, leads to death. It's a dangerous position. The second group we see here is found in the middle of his discussion with his brothers in verse 7. In verse 7, Jesus mentions, uh, The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because because I, I testify about it, that its works are evil. The world hates me. Now we could say if we were going to characterize the world's dangerous position of opposition, we would say that their position is being stuck in their immorality, in their evil. They did not want someone telling them what they were doing was wrong. Now, I know that you don't ever find yourself in that position. You want people to tell you what's wrong about you, right? The things that you're doing that are wrong. You want someone to come up and say, you know... 
you're just not doing that right. You're just not living right. In fact, I'm sure that you all, rather than the elders of this church scheduling visits with you, you invite them into your, into your home so that they can tell you the things that you're doing that are wrong. Isn't that right? Just like at Rincon Mountain. No, that, that doesn't happen that way, does it? Even, even for us, and I w- we, have to, we have to admit this, we all know that we need the shepherding of the church, the shepherding of the elders. We need that conviction. We really do need someone once in a while, don't we, to come and tell us the things we're doing wrong. And as Christians, uh, godly people, we look for that, but it still hurts. It's still, and, and we don't, we're not really keen on inviting it. We're really not anxious to invite that. The world hated, hated Jesus because he told them what they were doing was wrong. He wanted to bring them to a place of conviction. Now, when it mentions the world here, this is one of those words in the Gospel of John. It's the word cosmos. And it refers to those people that Jesus meets and sees and and ministers to somewhat on the circles, on the fringe. People that hear about Him but never believe, never want to hear the message. Several, in fact, if you look back into chapter 6, that left His ministry after being fed. Chapter 6, the feeding of the 5,000. I am the bread of life. People didn't want to buy into what Jesus was telling them there. And several left. They were not ready to be told what they were doing was wrong. They wanted to stay stuck in their immorality. They didn't want to give up some of their pet sins, if any of them. The next group we see in this passage are the Jews. Now, We've been studying the Gospel of John over at Rincon Mountain, and, and um, the, this this word, this term, the Jews, comes up quite often. And and I often remind our folks over there, and so that would be fitting here as well, uh, that John is not being uh, discriminatory. This is not a um, this is not uh, a uh, racial slur. But it's a very accusatory word. What John is saying here, when he says the Jews, who he's referring to are the religious leaders of that day, the Pharisees, the scribes, the Sadducees, even the Sanhedrin. John is saying, uh, when he says the Jews, he's saying he's talking about the religious leaders of that day. And if we were to characterize their, their position of opposition to Jesus, we would characterize it with this word, envy. Envy. If you look um, oh, down around verse 15, I believe it's verse 15, the Jews therefore marveled, saying, how is it that this man has learning when he has never studied? You know, that was one thing that continued to bug them. How can he talk with such authority? He's not been to the schools we've been to. He's not been sat under this rabbi, although I'm sure he did when he was growing up. He sat in the synagogues. He did learn. But perhaps he didn't have the training, the official training to be a Pharisee. And yet he spoke in such a way that, you know, you, you, could, you could put it all together with the Old Testament stories and, and accounts and law. It all made sense. Better than anything they would ever teach. How, how could this guy do this? They were envious of him. They wanted 
They wanted to get him. They wanted to take him out. They wanted to kill him. It was his, it was his growing popularity, wasn't it, that caused Jesus to be such a target for these men's hatred and, and uh, desire for ill. It was because he, he was God. He was God's, God's man on earth. He was God in flesh. He came to teach and to tell people about God and to bring a, a means of reconciliation. And they didn't, they didn't want to lose their position, these religious leaders. They had, a, they had a nice gig going. They had a nice thing going in the temple. They were, they were the rulers in the streets. They were the rulers. They could walk and do and say whatever they wanted. They were envious of this man. Because of that envy, they wanted to kill him. They wanted to destroy him. That envy is a, is a dangerous position of opposition. There's a, a story that uh, Dwight L. Moody tells. Of, it's a fable. Uh, it's about an eagle that uh, is, is envious of another eagle that flies so much higher, so much better than he does. And this eagle one day sees a sportsman down on the ground and he flies down to the sportsman and says you know if you could just take out that eagle for me i'd be so pleased you'd be doing me such a great favor and the sportsman says well i would if i had a feather for my arrow because i cannot shoot an arrow that high so the eagle plucks out a feather and gives him a feather to to notch his arrow with and so he or to put in his arrow, and he notches the arrow, and he lets the arrow go, and it does not fly high enough. So the sportsman says, I'll need another. The eagle gives him another. He does another one. I'm going to need another. I can't do it. Well, you see where this is going, right? The eagle gets to the point where he cannot fly. And so what does the, what does the sportsman have for dinner that evening? <laughs> he has eagle. And you know what eagle tastes like, right? Spotted pig meow. <laughs> or maybe chicken but it's that envy isn't it it's the envy of that eagle that destroys him it's the envy of the eagle that brings him down and it's, it's the envy of these religious leaders that eventually leads to their downfall envy is a dangerous position of opposition the last group that we see, the last uh, group of people we see in this uh, is the crowd. The crowd. Down in verse 20. We, we see the crowd mentioned other times throughout this passage, but here in verse 20 and following these last few verses of the passage we read today, uh, the crowd speaks to Jesus and then He responds to them. The crowd says, You have a demon. Who is seeking to kill you? And Jesus answers them, I did one deed and you all marveled at it. Jesus gave you circumcision. Not, or Moses gave you circumcision. Not that it was from Moses, but from the fathers. And you circumcise a man on the Sabbath. And so forth. Jesus answers them in a way that would show them that they are opposed to Him in this way. They are opposed to Him in being externally focused. Those last few verses there, He says... Um, are you angry with me because on the Sabbath I made a man's whole body? Well, do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. The crowd is all about externals. What is it that Jesus can do? What is it that He's done? This crowd is made up of some of those people that were fed by Him. Part of the feeding of 5,000. 
This crowd is made up of others who have perhaps seen Him heal. We're not sure exactly what they refer to or what Jesus is referring to when He talks about healing a man on the Sabbath because we're not told specifically here in John what exactly took place. But they saw Him do something. And that's what was always going on with the crowd. They were always focused on what He was doing, on the externals. And their problem was this. They did not, could not, see what God really wanted to do on the inside and what work that Jesus was doing on the inside. They were totally about the external. Totally about the the things that He was doing. The the wonderful deeds, the, the miraculous acts that He was performing. They were very much based on the outside. And they couldn't see beyond that to a deeper need that Jesus was meeting. And that they needed met in their own lives. So four, four groups of people here. As I said at the beginning, opposition is not necessarily bad. But being opposed to Jesus is bad. Opposition to Jesus is a dangerous position. So two points of application that we come to today as we look at this passage. There's the, crowd, there, there's the group of His brothers who are, who are stuck. They can't get beyond um, their, their own desire for their own needs. They, they don't necessarily want Jesus best. They are stuck in their unbelief. Then there's the, the Jews who want to... Um, want to destroy Him, want to take Him out because of their envy. There's the, the world that hates Him because He's told them about their evil, their wrongdoing. There's this last group, the crowd, that's externally focused, all opposed to Jesus. So the first point of application is where are you? There's a fifth crowd in this passage, or a fifth group of people, and it's the readers of the Gospel. That God has allowed to have this Word before you today. You, you have this Word. God has allowed the transmission of the Scriptures throughout, the, uh, throughout history so that we could read this today, so that we could hear about opposition to Jesus, to know that opposition to Jesus is a dangerous position. And where are you? Are you where the brothers are? Are you still stuck in unbelief where you can't see the Christ? You are unable to see beyond the externals, just like that crowd. Are you where the Jews were? The Jews were the religious leaders of, this, of their day. You might say, because God has given you His Word faithfully, you guys sit under good preaching every single Sunday... Those of you that are in RUF get it again on Wednesday nights. Other Bible studies, other places where you hear from God's Word, we could say, legitimately, given the world around us, you are the religious leaders of this day. But are you going to scoff at Jesus? Are you going to be envious of Jesus? And of His position? Here's a way to look at that, by the way. If you don't understand exactly how that fits for you, why isn't Jesus doing what I want Him to do in my life? If He can do all these things, why isn't He doing it for me? Why am I still struggling with this 
ailment, this disease, this difficulty? Why am I still struggling in this relationship? If Jesus heals, why isn't He healing me? He must not be who He says He is. Where are you in your opposition? And I'll say this. I and you struggle daily being opposed to Jesus. In one of those ways, we're envious, we're immoral, we, we don't want to give up with some, some sin that, we, that, we've got a, that has got a hold on us or that we have got a hold of that we don't want to let go. We, um, we're, uh, we have unbelief at times, or we're externally focused. And you and I struggle with those sins. And so God's Word today is telling us there can be freedom from that. There is freedom from that. That we don't have to be opposed to Jesus. We can move away from a position of opposition. I love it when my children give me sermon illustrations. But I love it even more when they give me biblical texts to mention in my sermon. And this morning, little Caleb was reading through his Bible. And he was helping me, or he wanted me to help him read through a verse. It was Amos 3.3. And I said, that fits so much with our sermon today. Amos 3.3 says, How can two walk together unless they agree? How can two walk together unless they agree? How can you walk with Christ unless you agree? Walking together with Christ means you're not in opposition, that you are along with His rule. You are going with His, His agenda. You are confessing. You are agreeing. You are confessing about your sin. You're letting go of those things in your life. You are walking in Christ. So the first application, how do you oppose Christ? And will you commit today not to? Will you commit to that each and every day as you're tempted to trust in Him, rest in His strength, to walk along with Him, to agree with Him? God, today, I need your strength. I'm going to face sin again. I'm going to face that same sin I, I faced yesterday, and I want it out of my life. I don't know how to get control of it, but you can. Those kinds of prayers, agreeing with Him, walking in Him. The second application it really flows out of the first, and that is to see Christ. To really see Christ as the one who can destroy anything in you that would want to oppose Him. The writer of Hebrews says this, I believe it's uh, Hebrews 12, verse 3. Consider Him who endured such opposition from sinful men, so that you would not grow weary or lose heart. Consider Him. That word consider is one of those wonderful Greek words that has so much more meaning than we can give it in our English Bibles, but that consider is, is a, it's a meditation upon. It is a resting in. It is a continual bringing back to mind. Consider Him who endured such opposition from sinful men. Jesus endured the opposition we do not see in these chapters 7 and 8 that are so full of opposition, listing all those groups, all those people, again, no one on His side. Jesus doesn't quit. 
we might expect to see later on here in, in chapter eight, or, or I mean seven or eight, um, Jesus Jesus went away. If if we didn't know the rest of the story, if we were just reading this for the first time, wouldn't we expect him to stop? Wouldn't we expect him to go? Uh, Jesus got in a boat and headed for Tarshish. Jesus stood up to this opposition in our place, folks, in our place. Jesus stands up to all the opposition. He takes it on. He keeps going. He stays faithful. We talk theologically about Christ's active obedience that earned for us a righteousness that we cannot have. It was His active obedience, being that second Adam, fulfilling all that the first Adam did not fulfill. It was His obedience, even in the spite of opposition, or especially in spite of this opposition, that earns for us a place before God, where we're accepted as holy and righteous. Jesus withstood all the opposition in our place. Great other theological words, substitutionary atonement. He was our substitute. He went through for us all this suffering, all this opposition, so that we would also be able to withstand it when we encounter it. He is our strength. He is our fortress. He is our comfort. All those things we sang of in those hymns. He is the one who did it for us. Opposition. Opposition. One of my favorite questions and answers from the confession believe it's question and answer in the shorter catechism number 26 how is christ or how does he execute the office of king christ executes the office of king as he subdues us under his power rules and defends us and conquers all of his and all of our enemies praise be to god that we have such a man such a god Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank You that we have a place to go to when we suffer, when we encounter difficulty, when we face opposition. We are not alone. We do not stand alone. But we we rest. We don't even stand in the presence of our Lord. We rest in Him. We rest in the fact that Christ conquers our enemies that He overcomes any and all opposition that could face us. He provides for us such security and confidence that we can go forward in this world with the ministries to which He's called us so that Your kingdom is advanced, not stopped, not hindered when we face these kinds of oppositions and difficulties. Lord, may we commit again today to not oppose Christ ourselves, but then also to rest in the fact that He has faced all the opposition, that He stands in our place, that we can stand and rest in Him. We thank You, Father, for providing us such a Savior. And it's in His name that we pray. Amen.